Brian. So hopefully they'll be well soon. You might send up a prayer in their behalf because it can be pretty debilitating and not much fun. So we don't want everybody to prosper and be in health, as Paul put it. Other than that, the government's back to work, sort of working their evil, if anything. But uh, how long that will last, we don't know. I read a good article this morning that indicated that Trump has abandoned all of the principles that he ran on. And uh, I suspect that he is under great pressure and perhaps has even been given an ultimatum that if he doesn't back off these things, uh, there could be serious trouble for him. So who knows? It's getting tighter and tighter and tighter in Washington. And uh, we already have, I think, a soft coup going because Robert Mueller is a crook and has been for all his career. Uh, he is the one who covered up the 911 thing so that uh, government implications involved in it would not be known. So as the head of the FBI appointed, what was it? I think I read seven days after 911, uh, he was sent in there to cover up the whole thing. So he's a crook from the word go. Every time I see a picture of him, it's amazing. I, I see John Reitenbaugh there. Uh, not that he's a crook, I don't mean that, but he looks just like him. It's kind of interesting. And I, I meant that. I'm not implying anything. I think John's a very upstanding man. I just uh, The resemblance so physically is, is uh, amazing to me at times. Anyway, we know America's going down, and probably very soon. So these things are adding up one thing on top of another, and we had best be aware of that, because only God can protect us from it all, uh, and he said he will if we'll do our part. We have nothing to worry about. What did Winston Churchill say? We have nothing to fear, but fear itself, and uh, that is very, very true. If we have faith in God, there's nothing to fear. God will take care of our property. He'll take care of us. He'll take care of everything that uh, He has promised to do. We just have to do our part. That's all. He is utterly faithful. We struggle to be faithful, but He is utterly faithful. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. And on that note, uh, Paul opens this chapter by saying, Be you followers of me. We have a lot of people who say, you're not to follow men. Well, Paul was a man, last I understood. And he says, be you followers of me. Even as I also am of Christ. So the implication there is, I'm following Christ, and therefore you should follow me. Now, if he did things unchristlike, of course, they didn't need to follow that, because we always obey God and do what he says rather than what men say or do. But uh, Paul was leading, essentially, a Christian life and following Christ. He was not completely. I hope we understand that, because there's only been one who did it completely, and that was Christ. So Paul had various problems, 
and he even said that he was a wretched man. I mean, just the fact that we're human means that compared to the Spirit and compared to God, we're wretched. Uh, we, we can't rise above that as human beings because our humanness, our physicality, is itself far short of the glory of God. So, not having the glory of God, all we have to present is ourselves, which is far from what God is. So, uh, all of our impunities and weaknesses and problems and attitudes and everything fall short of the glory of God. So, Paul was in that category, but... He also was a very zealous zealous follower of the things that Christ had taught him and the things he knew and understood, in spite of any human weaknesses that he had. So he could confidently say, follow me because I am following Christ. And I think other places we can see that any of us, all of us will fall short of that, but that doesn't make him a false preacher, or a false minister, or a false prophet. Uh, He believed Christ was coming back in his own lifetime. He was not a false prophet. Christ had just not given him understanding of time, and therefore he was void in that area, and he wasn't, he was a prophet. And yet he didn't understand everything. It always takes me back to Herbert Armstrong when I start talking this way because I do not consider him a false prophet at all. He understood a lot about Israel and about what would happen to us and the punishment that would come on us, but he misunderstood, I think, the source and the timing and some of those things, even as all the apostles did. didn't make him a false prophet either. Anyway, he opens this chapter with that statement because he's going to give them some correction here on some areas that they obviously had need. There were problems within the Corinthian church that needed to be handled. And he starts out with a very, very personal one. You know, we don't like to be corrected on the way we look, the way we act. Uh, We consider certain things very, very personal. And nobody better interfere with the way we want to look or be. And you find that throughout society. We have something going on now in in our culture, if you can call it that, called body shaming or uh, hair shaming or various things that people look at you and they don't like the way you look, so they'll say nasty things about it. And it's called shaming, whatever the particular topic of the moment might be. So people are very, very concerned, very conscious of the way they look. Uh, Sometimes we think we have to tell somebody they're fat. Or we have to remind them that they're fat. Or we have to remind them that we aren't. Or whatever. And, uh, you know, you don't have to tell a fat person they're fat. There's not a one of them that doesn't know it. They all know it. And they're all very conscious of it. And they're very, very, for the most part, uh, um, 
what's a word I'm looking for? Sometimes words these days leave me. Uh, conscious is one, but but uh, sensitive maybe is a good one to put in there. Very sensitive of it. So sometimes we remind people of things that they really don't need reminders of. But here, there were some problems with the way people looked. And Paul addresses it head on, and he starts out by saying, I'm following Christ, and therefore you need to follow me, before he even introduces the subject. And he compliments them, and sometimes you need to do that. If you're going to correct somebody on something personal, uh, you have to approach it pretty carefully and try not to hurt their feelings, and yet at the same time, maybe they need to know something. So he says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. So he says, I've, I've been teaching you, and I'm thankful, and I praise you, and have good will toward you, that you've been able to accept and follow the things that Christ taught me that I've taught you. And you have been keeping these things. So he compliments them and thanks them ahead of time uh, before he gives the correction. Now this is instructive to us in the way that we approach each other with instruction or guidance or correction in some cases or letting them know about something that they're sensitive about. Uh, it's love, is what it is, that he starts out this way. Uh, he, he tries to soften it a little bit and let them know that he does care for them, that he's thankful for them, and yet on the other hand, there's something here that needs to be dealt with. And he even said, didn't we read it earlier in this same book, do I have to come to you with a hammer or can I come gently and kindly? Uh, he could do it either way. And there were some times that he had to. Uh, Christ is kind and gentle and merciful. And yet, on the other hand, there's the phrase, I don't remember where it is, about the severity of Christ. He can come as a warrior and with a blood-draped vest or he can come very gently and kindly. It's up to us how he comes to us, depending on our attitudes and our approach and uh, what we need. So he can be very kind and gentle, and yet he says, I chasten every son that I love. That shows my love, is that I want them, don't want them to be off track. I want them to be where they should be. So he starts out that way in verse 3. Then he introduces the subject. He says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Does that mean you're supposed to take your hat off before you pray or prophesy? I've seen a lot of people do that. They'll take their hat off to pray. Maybe they got it here. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it makes too much difference to God whether I have a hat on when I pray or not. There are a lot of times I pray and have a ball cap on, and if I'm driving and texting at the same time and having to take my hat off while I eat lunch, uh, 
I might get distracted and have an accident. I, I kid, of course, because I don't text. I, I will eat lunch sometimes when I'm driving. That's why you see my shirt dirty. But uh, what does this mean? Uh, people interpret it that way. You've got to take your hat off to pray, whether you pray or prophesy, whatever you're doing, preaching. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors... Uh, oh, wait a minute, I skipped a verse here. Uh, let's go back to verse 3. Uh, he, he establishes something here very, very important, and I, I don't know why I went to 3. I just overlooked it. Uh, I mean to 4. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. He opens it this way. The head of every man is Christ. And feminazism aside, the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. So everybody but God the Father has a head. He is the head of all. So he establishes at first that Christ is in charge of every man. Every man has to look to Christ as his head. And the head of the woman is the man. Now, there are a lot of people that don't believe that anymore. And our culture is shot through with it. But this is the word of God right here, that the head of the woman is the man. It's not in italics. It's not mistranslated. It's true. That's the way God designed it in Genesis. And it's echoed throughout the entire Bible. So I don't care what the society around us is doing. Uh, that's the way that it is. Now, you can go to Ephesians 5... And you can see how a man is to treat a woman who is under his jurisdiction. And you can see how a woman is supposed to respond to a man. I won't go through that right here in this context. I went through it not too long ago, in, I think around Passover, or whenever I went through that particular section in Ephesians about marriage. So there are rules about how to conduct ourselves under this ordinance, this saying, this law of God. And a woman is to treat her husband as Christ, Ephesians 5. And Christ is, I mean, the man is supposed to treat her with loving kindness and gentleness. But that's the way God set it up. Now, that does not restrict a woman's capacity to go straight to the Father and to Christ because the veil of the temple was rent for all of us. So, a woman is to respect, she is to obey. They've taken that out of most marriage ceremonies now. But that's what Scripture says. She is to obey her husband. If she is going to fulfill Proverbs 31 and other Scriptures uh, in the Bible, she has to obey, whether she wants it in the marriage ceremony or not. If you're going to be a Christian, that's what you have to do. And a man has to treat a woman as Christ would, with respect and love and dignity and kindness and sometimes correction. That's the way God set it up. 
So he's reiterating that before he introduces this subject. And that even Christ himself has a head, and that is his, his Father in heaven, our Father in heaven. So, what does he do? He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And he says, in another place, I think I have the Spirit of God. Then he praises them that they have been willing to accept the things of God. Now, that was a big deal, because as we're going to see here very shortly, they were worshipers of idols. They knew nothing of God in Christ. They just knew of Baal and Diana and Ashtaroth and Nimrod and Semiramis and all these gods is all they knew. So he says, I'm thankful to see your minds accepting the things of God. And then he establishes the pecking order. <laughs> Here is the way God has set up the situation from God the Father to Christ to the man to the woman. That's the order in which the authority runs, if you will. So there's a different way to approach a personal issue, which is we're going to find what's on the head, the human head. So he says then, as I got ahead of myself, every man praying or prophesying, had, prophesying having his head covered dishonors his head, not only his own personal head, but his head Christ. Because Christ is his head. He just established that. So he says, if a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors Christ. Now we're going to get to a minute, here in a minute, what having your head covered actually means. Because it's been misinterpreted by a lot of people. So a man cannot pray with his head covered or he dishonors Christ. Now verse 5, but every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So she, if she covers hers, or, or does not cover hers, then she dishonors her husband and Christ, who is the head over her husband. Does that mean that a woman ought to always put a hat on before she prays? If a man has to take his off to uncover his head, then a woman should have to put one on to cover her head, if we're talking about hats. Have you, do you women always put a hat on when you pray? Why would it be impolite or a breach of etiquette for a man to pray with a hat on if it's not for a woman, then she's required to have a hat on. Wouldn't it be honor and obedience and respect for her also to take her hat off? Why one and not the other? Well, because it isn't talking about hats, despite most Protestantism. So if she has her head covered or uncovered, uh, she dishonors her head, her husband, and ultimately Christ. For that is even all one as if she were shaved. Her head was shaved. Do you shave your hat? 
No, you shave what? Hair. This is the subject here is hair. We'll see that as we go on. It doesn't have anything to do with hats. Period. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. You don't shear hats. You shear hair. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So, shorn or shaven has to do with hair. And if shorn or shaven is a shame, then she needs to be covered with what? Hair. Not a shawl, not a hat, not a bandana, but hair. We'll see that. He makes it even clearer as he goes on. He's talking about hair length here. Either you have hair that covers your head, or you might as well have it shaved. Some women do that today. Shave it completely. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Men, not man in, including women, but man was made in the image of God. God is male. He is masculine. He is not your pick of 15 genders. He's not shaped like a woman. He's shaped like a man. And he has all the gear that a man has. Because he is, man is made in the exact image of God. Now, I'm not talking short, tall, fat, skinny, or what, but I'm talking about all body parts and all uh, the elements of the mind, the emotions, in that sense, are more like God. But that doesn't demean the woman because many of the elements of her personality are also very much of God because the man and the woman together with their combined emotions and, and, um, and feelings and approach come closer to representing God. So we're not talking about the mental makeup and the uh, physio that, that type of thing and the emotions. We're talking here of the physical. And I did, did I say, um, maybe I kind of implied there that a man was more like God emotionally and so on. I don't, no, I don't think that. I didn't mean to imply that because the combination of all that a man and woman are represent God as a package better than either of male or female do. But God gave man certain leadership characteristics, let's say, so that he could be in charge and could be the leader and is supposed to be, and the woman is supposed to recognize that and follow it. Today there's so much misunderstanding on that, and men have been emasculated to the point they aren't men anymore. They're sissy boys. And our kids are growing up without masculine fathers, and they're becoming soy boys is another expression they use. Uh, true masculinity has been destroyed, and the nation is going down as a result of it. Where are the men? Now we have the Pelosi's and the Oscar, what's-her-name uh, women that stand up, and 
They're our leaders. Isn't that what Isaiah 3 says? Children rule... Uh, the children rule over them. No, I guess it's the women rule them and the children oppress them or the opposite, whatever it is. Both are bad. So he's establishing something here. And God intended it to be this way so that there would be a complete difference between male and female. The man is made in the image of God and woman was created for the man not in the same image of the man. And therefore, a man is not supposed to marry a man. He's supposed to marry a female that God created as a help to him and created her in a way that is attractive to a man. And a man is not supposed to be attracted to another man in that way at all. And Paul makes that very clear in Romans 1 and other places as does do other parts of the Bible. Sodomy is one of the greatest sins of all in the Old Testament. Okay. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. Whatever this is talking about is very, very important. Because a man is in the image and glory of God in a way that a woman is not. That's the point he's making. The woman is the glory of the man. The man is the glory of God, represents it. A woman represents the glory to the man. It's the way God set it up. Like it or not. And these people that he's writing to didn't like it. And if I read this to a vast majority of Americans, they would not like it at all. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. She is to be in subjection to the man. To obey him and serve him in every way she possibly can. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. You've been listening to feminism so long that this has affected you, men and women. It has affected our whole society. And the whole thing is going down the tubes because this is not respected. Now, verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Now, that is better translated. For this cause ought the woman to have a covering in sign that she is under the power of her husband. That's what the Greek says. She's to have long hair to show that she is under her husband. It is a sign of subjection. Because of the angels. Why because of the angels? Because the angels are our protectors. They have been assigned to take care of us. 
And rebellion is as witchcraft. So he's saying here, and we'll see it more clearly, that if a man has short hair, he is in rebellion against God in the image that God made him in. If a man has long hair. If a woman has short hair, then she is disobeying God and showing that she is not in subjection to her husband because it was given for that very purpose is to show that. Verse 11, Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the man or the woman without the man in the eternal. In other words, God set this up so that there's the Father, the Son, the man, and the woman. But he shows right here what I actually said earlier. Uh, we all are one under the eternal. A woman has access to the eternal the same as a man does. But in this physical realm, she is to be subject to her husband. He is to take the lead. He is the one who should be making the decisions for the family, for the marriage, for the most part. Now, if we marry outside the church, it creates a problem in that because the man is unconverted and then a woman is constantly wrestling with this and juggling it because he doesn't want to obey God and she does, and yet he is to be her head as her husband, but her head's going the wrong direction. So it creates an automatic problem is why God says don't marry except in the church. Now, if we have, uh, we have, to some degree or another, suffered with that. And it's a situation that we made, and then we have to live with it as best we can. But he says, if that mate, male or female, will not permit you to serve God in peace, in chapter 7, then you can depart from them and not be bound to them, because God is the one that caused it to be that way, if he called one and not the other. But if you marry somebody not in the church, then whatever suffering you go through, you create it and you have to deal with it. Just all there is to it. And sometimes it can be very, very difficult. Sometimes it's not so bad. But uh, there, there are some elements of problem regardless. Verse 12, For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. There's not a man here that wasn't born of a woman. So women are important, he says, and uh, you wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. So don't get the big head and think, well, I'm in charge here, because nowhere does it say that a man is to beat down and forcibly subject a woman in a wrong way. Uh, or overlord her. And most of that overlord business comes because a man feels inferior or has not been taught the tools to use to cause a woman to want to follow him. And without those tools, he's kind of working under a bad situation. I would hate to have to build a house with only my fingers and my teeth. I know beavers do it, 
But uh, I would hate to have to try to do it without saws and hammers and nails and so on. Uh, the tools help. But that's a, that's a whole other subject. But it's still, he's explaining the circumstances under which we live and how they ought to be. To explain a personal issue right here in this context. Verse 13, Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray to God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame to him? So the subject is indeed hair. He calls it covering in some places in this chapter. Some places he calls it hair. He doesn't talk about taking a hat off. He takes about shaving or shearing a head of hair. What about Absalom? He's a pretty good example there. He was riding a horse with his long hair flying, and it wrapped around a branch as he rode under a tree and hung him. And he died there because he had long hair. If he'd had short hair, it would have been a problem. So there's one case where nature should have taught something. Well, I, I don't like it when mine gets very long at all because if you're working under cars or around equipment or various things that hair gets in the way and you can get it caught in machinery and wrap your little old head up and kill yourself pretty easy with long hair people do it I mean just with their shirt sleeves sometimes so he, he appeals to that and says look the nature of a man's work, and we're not talking about white-collar office soys. We're talking about men who are out farming and ranching and doing the things that God intended a man to do from the beginning. And in that environment, nature should teach you that long hair is a shame. But if a woman have long hair, see, it's talking about hair here. It is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Now, how direct can you get? He's been talking about coverings up here, and whether your head is covered when you pray or not. And now he explains in so many words that the hair is the covering. Not a hat, not a shawl. Not a prayer cloth, not a beanie. Her hair is given for a covering. And if a man has his long hair, that's too much covering. So he's saying here, a man should have his hair cut short, and a woman should have her hair long. Bottom line. He is to pray uncovered, that is, not have long hair, and she is to pray having long hair as her covering to show subjection to her husband and the man to show the glory of Christ because Christ has short hair. I don't know who the heavenly barber is, 
or whether their hair grows or not, is eternal beings. But Christ had a beard, and he had short hair. Now, any picture you see of him as a Protestant, he had long hair, and but they did put a beard on him, because all men back then wore beards. And David and his men, when they had been shaved, uh, went and hid until their hair grown out, grew out, their beard grew out, because to them, it was a shame to look like a woman, to have a smooth, shaven face. It was a shame to them. Does it make you more look more like a man or more like a woman when you have a baby, soft-looking face? I ask you. No, Christ wore a beard. So did all the other men in the Bible that I have ever read or seen about. Nowhere did they shave their faces. Does that mean that everybody has to wear a beard today? I don't know that I'm prepared to go that far, but I'd certainly rather look masculine than effeminate. And when a man wears long hair, he looks more girly. Sorry, it's just the way it is. If a woman wears her hair cut short, then she looks more masculine or more 15 gender. I saw a woman in office Friday, Thursday. Oh, it's Halloween every day. Hair was shaved all the way up her back, and she looked like a Roman soldier with a helmet with a thing along the top to keep the sword from going through it. Weird looking. She didn't look masculine, and she certainly didn't look feminine. She just looked weird. And that's the way a lot of it is today. But he makes it very clear. A woman have long hair, it is a glory. For her hair is given for a covering. Don't the Protestants read verse 15? I guess not. (laughs) That's what's given. Then he says, If any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. He says, I'm not just getting on you Corinthians only, but throughout the church, a man is to have short hair and a woman is to have long hair. It is her covering, it is her glory, and a man's glory is his short hair. Then you can get into the argument very easily, how long is long and how short is short. The church tried to do that some decades ago, and they were measuring it. They were measuring skirt lengths and hair lengths to see if uh, they qualified or not. I don't think God intends us to go there, but I think this principle is there. Be sure that no, no one would ever mistake you for a girl because of your hair, men. And women, be sure that no one would ever mistake you for a male based on your hair length. Now, this doesn't say anything about hairstyles. It has to be long. Now, you can wear it up on top of your head, or you can wear it wrapped around your head, Or you can wear it under your arm if you want to. We're not talking about style. We're talking about length. And the general principle, I think, being very well explained here, 
is it needs to be short on men and needs to be long on women, and that there be no confusion as to which you are. You know, sometimes you look at somebody in a in a store. I remember seeing one the other day, and I kept looking. Is that a man or is that a woman? And it was very, very hard to tell. And you had, and they were wearing lumpy men-like clothes, but I finally figured out it was a girl. I'm not even sure exactly how I figured it out, but I did. Maybe I heard her voice. I don't know. But this becomes a salvational issue. Let's understand that. There's no such thing in the church of God as a long-haired man or a short-haired woman. There's no such thing. If anybody is contentious, this is not allowed in the churches of God, it says. Why? Because of the very, very important meaning that a man is to be in the image of and the glory of God is what he is to represent. And if he comes with long hair, he does not represent what God looks like in any form or fashion. So your whole view of him as a man is skewed by the long hair. How can be he be in the image of God if he has long hair? It says here he can't. And it says that a woman's hair, long hair, which is there for a covering, is her glory. To show her subjection to her husband and to God. So that's the word of God on that, despite the hippie movement and what all goes on in our society yet today. It isn't so much men now that have really long hairs, it is women who are going the other way and cutting theirs off. There's a lot of that because of the present feminazi movement. Now in this that I declare to you, I praise you not that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies, or divisions, or schisms, it says in the Greek, among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So he says... We got a church here. We got a congregation here. He says we should all be united, and we'll see that more later, and be one. But he says there appear to be divisions among you, and he says I partly believe it. I think this is probably true based on what I've heard. And indeed, he was correct. There was division over length of hair in that particular con congregation, or he wouldn't have taken such pains to go through it and to show the symbolism and the meaning of short hair and long hair on men and women. He wanted them to get the spiritual message. This isn't just a small rule. This is important because of the typology that is involved. Now, that wasn't the only problem they were having. But I think it's an interesting thing to note here 
that there must be heresies or, uh, as the Greek says here, what was that word that he uses? Or, uh, my eyes won't pick up that little word, sex, I think it says. No, veils. No, wait a minute. Sects. Yeah, it was right the first time. There must be also sects among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. So he says, there are going to be little groupings of people that don't believe the same thing. There will be those who disagree. And a sect is a small group of people who disagree with what the others around them agree upon. So he says, this has to be that those which are approved, can be approved, which are approvable, may be made manifest among you. So he said, it's a natural thing that everybody's not agreeing so that we can see who is willing to listen and be taught and agree and who is going to stick to their own ideas come hell or high water. Now, the goal is not to have little sects and divisions and schisms among you. The goal is that everybody believe the same things, do the same things, and act the same way. That's the goal of the church. That's the goal of Christ, because that's the way the kingdom of God is going to be. If you disagree with the Father and the Son, you won't be in the kingdom of God. Because there will be no divisions, there will be no sects, there will be no disagreement, there will be total and complete harmony, so that there's no sorrow and no tears and no death. Everybody is going to have to believe the same thing or they will not be there. That's all there is to it. Now that's the ultimate spiritual fulfillment that God is going to achieve. But Paul said, sorry, it's not that way right now. And... But through this, we're going to find out who is teachable, who's willing to learn, and who is not. Verse 20, he introduces another subject where there was a problem. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. He introduces uh, the bread and the wine here. The Passover service, if you will, is what he is addressing. The Passover service. And he says, when you do come together, they were to come together into one place to keep the Passover. But they weren't to eat the Lord's Supper. Christ had a dinner with his disciples on that night that we call the Lord's Supper. They did have supper that night. But after the meal... He changed the symbols from a meal to the bread and the wine. Now, this goes back to the Old Testament in Exodus 12, where they were to sacrifice this lamb, and they were to roast it and eat it and have a dinner, a meal. If there's any left by morning, they were to burn it. Uh, so it was instituted as a meal. And Christ did it that way in obedience to that Old Testament. And then he changed the symbols 
to the bread and the wine and the foot washing. Those were the symbols going forward. Now, Paul makes that very clear here. When you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Under the New Testament, we're not to be eating a meal together that night. Let's go on and see that. For in eating, everyone takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. So he said, you're not all coming together and having a meal prepared for all of you. You're coming together. Some of you have lots of food, and you eat and don't share it with others. Some of you have lots of booze, and you drink it, and you don't share with others. And some of you wind up hungry, and some of you wind up drunk. Is the Passover, serve, Passover night, is that a good time to be drunk, or hungry, or too full? What? He says, question mark. What? <laughs> I think you could emphasize. This isn't right. Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? You're not to come together as one on Passover evening and eat and drink. <coughs> you eat and drink in your own house. Or despise you the church of God and shame them that have not. <coughs> what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. <coughs> Excuse me. For I have received of the eternal that which also I delivered to you. I, he says, I've instructed you on this before, having received it from Christ himself. That the eternal Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. <coughs> he said, here's the, here's the instruction I gave you before. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So they were to eat that bread as a representation and a symbolism of his body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. He didn't tell him, didn't instruct Paul to eat a meal. He instructed him to eat the unleavened bread. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had eaten, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he's saying, What you eat and what you drink is the bread and the wine, not a meal. Do this, and remember me. Now, people have misunderstood oft there as saying, we can do this as often as we want to. So some do it once a year, some do it twice a year, some do it every month, some do it every week. Uh, you know, they, they choose when. Of course, Scripture tells you when you come together for the Lord's Passover on the 14th of Abib. Now, maybe there's an application for as oft as you do, because don't we do this daily? Don't I go to God every day and ask forgiveness through His blood and through His broken body? Yes, I do. 
but I don't actually physically drink the wine and eat the bread <clears throat> every day. But I certainly do it in symbolism, asking that his sacrifices cover me. But other than that, the only authorization we have for often is at Passover. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So it's done as a projection, as a prophecy, signifying that he is coming and that you need to have your sins covered so that you can be resurrected to glory when he does come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the eternal unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the eternal. Now, this is serious, serious business here. If you don't take it in a worthy manner, then your sins are not forgiven, and you are guilty of killing him. Any sin not forgiven is a sin against God and a sin against Christ. And therefore, is part of his dying, is what it is. Now, his blood, his body can cover our sins, but he's saying they're not covered. You can literally go to Passover, take the bread and the wine and pray over it, and be just as guilty when you walk out of there as when you walked in. That's what he's saying. These people were in that category. They were coming and having a party. They were not even sharing, and some were getting drunk. Some were eating till they were about to pop, and others were sitting there watching them eat and hungry because they didn't have anything to eat. They were doing this all in a totally unworthy manner, not showing any love, not any concern for each other, but taking care of themselves. So if we're taking care of ourselves and not serving and taking care of others, then we're doing it in an unworthy way. Now we have said that worthily would mean with zeal, uh, with conviction, and unworthily would be with uh, carelessness or lackadaisical, nonchalant attitudes. And I think that that is certainly true. God wants us to do whatever we do with our might. And when we approach the Passover service, it should be with as great a might as we can possibly muster because it's as important as anything we do all year. More important than virtually anything you do all year is taking the Passover service. And he doesn't want us coming there with the Laodicean ho-hum attitude. He wants us there primed and ready to accept Christ's death for our sins, which is the most important thing that has ever happened in the universe, is God coming and dying for you and me, and then being resurrected that we might live instead of die in our sins. There is nothing more important than what he did.
Otherwise, the world is lost. So if you come with anything other than a reverent, respectful, worshipful attitude, then you are in danger of walking out of there with your sins still intact. Just because you take bread and wine as a symbol or as a type doesn't mean it means anything. It doesn't mean a thing unless it's done in a worshipful, respectful, loving attitude. And that's why we wash each other's feet as well, to show humility and willing to serve and to give to the other person as opposed to eating and getting drunk and ignoring the other person. It's all about love. Christ's sacrifice was all about love. He gave His only begotten Son for all men because He loved us all. So what He did was the purest love that has ever been done. And we should approach it with that kind of pure love for our fellow man who, as we all come together as one to accept Christ's sacrifice for us, there should be a great depth of brotherhood and sisterhood and love that night as there should be always but it's so important that very night that we come together as one and there be no division no schism no separation no division but close as Christ and his disciples were now there was one problem with that, even the night he took the supper, because there was one there who was not together with it, and went out and betrayed Christ immediately. He went out, what? With his sin with him. His sin was with him. And when he realized it, he hung himself. But he didn't realize it during the Passover. So he took it unworthily. He took it with the wrong attitude, with the wrong spirit, with the wrong approach, with rebellion in his heart, and died for it. And he says, if we take it with the wrong approach, we will die, because our sins will not be forgiven, and his blood and his body will still be held against us, and the blood guilt will be on us. And it will be our head that rolls. Well, this is as serious as it gets. <clears throat> but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now, it doesn't say to avoid taking it. It says examine yourself very, very carefully before you do take it. It's necessary that we take it. If we don't take it, then his blood and his body are not there for us. If we do take it, but we take it in the wrong attitude, then his body and his blood are not there for us. They are only there if we take it with deep, worshipful respect, honor, and glory to God, and with love for one another as the body of Christ. In that case, his body and his blood cover us each of us.
For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself, not dividing the Lord's body, or not discerning it, not understanding it, and not dividing it into two parts as well. So, he's, he doesn't just say it's, a, it's not a good night for you. He's saying if you take it with the wrong attitude, you are taking damnation or eternal judgment against yourself. It's a salvational issue to come that night with the right attitude or you still carry your sins and you will be damned for it. That's lake of fire. To even begin to say, oh, well, see, it's almost time for Passover. I better grab my Bible and go 15 minutes early and, and bone up on these scriptures before I get there. Nah, that doesn't work. You need to start examining yourself on the first day of the first month. And very carefully examine yourself prior to the Passover day, even getting there, to be sure that you are in the right, respectful, honorable, loving attitude toward God and man before you ever get there. Because if your attitude toward man is wrong, then God says, I'll judge you according to your attitude toward man, doesn't he? In several places. So you can't come here with an attitude against man. If there's anything that you have not forgiven of anyone before you take the Passover, you're drinking damnation to yourself. And if you carry anybody's sin with a lack of forgiveness beyond that night, you're continuing the damnation. Everybody's sin is absolutely wiped out that night if they take it in the right attitude and approach. And therefore, with it gone, why are you retaining it? Totally ungodly. If you retain sin, you are not of God. Do we understand that? God does not retain sin. If we do, we are being ungodly. You're drinking damnation to yourself, he says. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many are dead. For this very cause, I'm not taking the Passover with the right attitude. That's scary. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the eternal. He is our judge. We aren't each other's judges. That we should not be condemned with the world. We have put ourselves under the judgment of God, he says. And that judgment is uh, imposed upon us by our willing taking of the Passover, the bread, and the wine. <clears throat> because that's something we do to show that we accept Christ as our Savior and that we accept Christ as our judge. Otherwise, we'd be condemned with the world. If it weren't for this thing that we have, 
with Christ as our Savior, we'd be condemned like the rest of the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, carry one for another. Now, what were they coming together to eat? Bread and the wine. Not a meal. He's already covered that. He's already put that aside. He says, when you come together, you don't go there and keep the Passover yourself, by yourself and of yourself. You come and you wait for one another to eat and drink together in unison, in harmony, because that's what the Spirit of God creates, is harmony and peace. It does not create contention and division. So if there's contention and division, it's on us, it isn't on him. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. You're not sitting here waiting on each other to eat a meal. You, you do that at home. When we come together and wait for each other, it's to have the bread and the wine together. So if it's, if it's about hunger, stay at home and eat. That you come not together to condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So he says, this is the outline. And he must have had some other things in mind there that he wanted to say. But he says, I'll wait and uh, put that order when I, in order when I get there. But meantime, uh, the hair length and the proper keeping of Passover were two issues that he felt he had to address. And he has more to address before the book's over. But those were two important doctrinal things with very, very deep uh, symbol, symbol, symbolism and meaning. Uh, we tend to overlook the hair thing, I think, sometimes. We've, we've zeroed in more on Passover. But the symbolism in the hair description is also very, very important in the direct symbolism that is there between the Father, Christ, the man, and the woman, and symbolizes the relationship between each of those in a very, very dramatic and dynamic way. <coughs> and it's just another way that the world has departed from God, and that simply cannot be. It's not, if any man's contentious, then uh, that's not the way the church of God is. Now, I've talked about this decades ago, and there's some women that had their hair shaved probably shorter than mine is right at the moment, sitting in the audience, and they would not receive that. The more you preached it, the more you expounded it, the more set the face got the more the rebellion showed. And you could have stood there until you breathed your last breath, extolling, shouting, um, pleading, whatever, and the look wouldn't change. Because they were contentious about it. And they were not going to let their hair grow out so they didn't have a manly look, no matter what you said. Was that a sect within the church that were really non-members? I'd have to say so.
because they would not recognize the subjection to man, man himself or her, their husbands, and they would not submit to God's Word. And if you won't submit to God's Word and to your husband, you are not a follower of Christ. And if you're not a follower of Christ, then you cannot define yourself as a Christian because a Christian is one who follows Christ. It's that simple. I don't believe anybody here is contentious of that, thankfully. But, but it's part of the Scripture and something we really need to truly understand, especially in a society today that pays no attention to this or completely, utterly takes it out of context and thinks we're talking about hats or shawls. It has nothing to do with that, very clearly. Hair is a covering or an uncovering, short or long. And don't approach Passover here in a couple, three months without serious, serious introspect and considering your relationship with God and with each other because it is a judgment of damnation issue is what it is. It's very, very important. And Paul makes that very clear. So uh, Passover's actually getting pretty close now. We're into January nearly, and February, March, and then it's April. <clears throat> so maybe this is good. We could be reminded of this and think about it <clears throat> well ahead of time and try to be getting ourselves in line with God, with His Word, uh, with each other, so that there be no divisions that Paul had to have gotten upset about when he came. So, okay, that's it for today.